You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. We want to welcome you. We're glad you're here today. If those of you who stayed home in the icy storm or afraid of the flu, we're glad you're watching online right now. If you're watching later this week, we just want to say welcome. Also, we're in week two in our series called Core. We're like taking a look at what are we about as a church and what are we trying to do in the world? What is God uniquely doing here at Kingsway that he may not be doing at other churches? And that's okay, but here's what he's doing in us. So here's where I want to start. So for those of you visiting online or maybe new to Kingsway, you don't know this about me. I grew up in Northeast Ohio. I actually grew up right outside of a little town called Akron, Ohio. Nobody had ever heard of Akron, really. Back in the day, it was known as the rubber capital of the world because Goodyear and all the rubber tire companies were located right there. And then they all left and went to various other places to make their product. So that left Akron with a big vacuum. And then LeBron showed up, and now everybody's heard of Akron again. But I'll just say I was there first. Anyway, moving on. <clears throat> Nobody refers to Akron as the place where Matt Nickerson's from. I don't know what's up with that. Anyway, as a person who grew up in Akron, Ohio, uh, sports was a really big deal. The Football Hall of Fame was about 20 minutes south of us in Canton, Ohio, and the Cleveland Browns were about 40 minutes or so north of us, as well as the Indians, the Cavs, or whatever. So God... Bless me, I grew up a Cleveland fan and a Buckeye fan, and also an Akron U and Kent State fan. And here's the thing, for my entire childhood, none of those teams won anything. Apparently, at some point, the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, all of those teams were dominant in some way or another. But in my childhood, in the late 70s, 80s, and 90s, they didn't win squat, nothing. I watched as Cleveland team after Cleveland team had what we called the fumble, you ever heard of that? The drive, the kick, all these, you know you have a sad sports town when they come up with one word monikers to describe your, your team's losses. I watched, if any of you remember this, I watched the Bulls destroy the Cavs in championship after championship, playoff after playoff, over and over and over again. There's this famous shot they show all the time on SportsCenter. Michael Jordan goes up, it's a last second shot. The Cavs are winning by camera one or two. He goes up. And he goes to shoot a shot. A guy named Craig Elo goes up to block it. And Michael Jordan shoots over him, sinks it, he wins. It's that celebration one they show over and over again. And every time I watch ESPN, I have to hurt all over again. I've watched that game live. I'll never forget hearing Craig Elo, the guy guarding him, say, it was the most amazing moment of my life. He went up, I went up, I came down, he stayed up. I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> Said every guy who ever guarded Michael Jordan, right? The second greatest basketball player of all time. <clears throat> I just started a whole bunch of tweet debates, didn't I? All right, moving on. The whole point of this is, I'll never forget, I watched Buckeye team after Buckeye team lose to Michigan. Lose, I know, some of you are Michigan fans. I pray for you. Uh, lose to somebody. Like, they'd have this perfect season wrapped up. But then finally, finally, my moment came. In 2002, we were playing the Miami Hurricanes. And the Miami Hurricanes were, everybody knew, the best team in the nation. Somehow, and everybody felt like it shouldn't have happened, the Buckeyes snuck into the championship game. We were going to be in Florida, my wife and I, for a youth conference. And I was so excited because I thought, I misunderstood, they were going to be playing the game there. I was so excited. I was like, we're going to go. I don't care if it costs us $10,000. We're going to go. But here's the thing. You can ask my wife. I knew we were going to lose. It didn't matter. You can't have decade after decade after decade of loss and heartbreak and not believe you are going to lose again. So I told my wife, we could do whatever you want leading up to that, after that. But for that night, 
we have plans. We will be in the hotel room. I said, I don't want to go to like uh, Applebee's and watch it because I want to yell and scream at the TV. Whoever was in the rooms next to us, below us, above us, were probably miserable, I'm sure. They called to complain multiple times. It was a double overtime game. It took forever. And every time my team scored, every time the ref blew a call against my team because I never got it right, I yelled, I screamed, I cheered. Does anybody else know what this is like? Are any of you yellers and screamers and cheers at your sports teams? Finally, after decades of pain and turmoil, I watched one of my teams finally win it all, and I yelled and I screamed, and it was amazing. But here's the thing. When it comes to sports, everybody knows how to win. In baseball, your job is to get on first base. That's it. That's your first job. But then you got to make it to second, third, and eventually to home. If you do that more times than the other team, you what? You win, right? That's the goal. It doesn't matter if you get hit by the ball, if you take a walk, you could bunt, you could swing away, whatever it takes, that's how you score points. And basketball, you take the round ball, you throw it into a metal circle. If you can manage to do that more times than the other team, unless they happen to be the greatest three-point shooting team of all time, which is another sore spot for me as a Cavs fan, but regardless, if you could do that more times than them, then you win. And if you win, everybody knows how you win. In football, at the end of the game, you need to have the ball across the goal line more times the other team. Occasionally, you might kick your way to a win. More times than not, you have to go from this end of the field to that end of the field. You do it in small increments. So there's little celebrations along the way. You go 10 yards, you celebrate. You go another 10, you celebrate. You finally get in the end zone, everybody goes bonkers, you start over again. And if you do that more times than the other team, you what? You win. In hockey, well, let's be honest, nobody knows how to play hockey. So moving on. <laughs> I'm just offended all the hockey fans. We all know soccer is way worse. Okay. <coughs> Getting again, getting again, it's golf. So nobody knows in the church world, can I just make everybody mad? Can we just keep going? All right. Nobody knows in the church world, how do you know if you win, right? Here's how we gauge how we win in the church world. Well, I went to church today, and man, that worship set was amazing. They didn't play any wrong notes. I'm backstage, and Rhett's upset at something. What's going on? He's like, ah, last service, I played a wrong note. Like, Rhett, nobody... Trust me, like in one note, in one song, nobody cares. Everybody moved on. But that's what goes through our head, right? Here's how we gauge whether we won at church or not. I came to church today. If you're a parent, that's a win, okay? We made it. We made it somewhat on time. God spoke to me in the service. It was a win. And that's it. That's all we know how to gauge it. If we can go home and say to our family, man, Matt, Matt was killing it today. Man, Matt, Matt hit a grand slam home run at today. Now, there are Sundays that you go home and you go, eh, eh he got on base. <laughs> you know, he didn't make it all the way around, but, you know, he, he went down swinging at least. And maybe because you love me or because you love this church, you're rooting for me, right? You want me to win, so you root for me, so you pull for me, so you might celebrate that. But those messages, you just kind of let them go. Those must have been for somebody else today. I don't know if I would say we won or not, but, hey, it was okay. And at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're gauging winning and losing in church by one method. How did I feel about it? How did it impact me? And if that's our only gauge for whether or not the church is winning, I think we're missing the bigger point. What I want to do today is talk to you about how do we know, how do we know when to celebrate as a church? And I think the Bible is very clear, although I could easily do 10 messages on this topic alone, I'm going to do one. So realize I'm cutting a lot, a lot of really good stuff, but I think I can make it clear. Here's my goal by the end of today. You will mimic me 
from just a handful of years ago. I think, and I could be wrong now, it's been a while, I've slept a few nights, but uh, was it 2011 or 2012, the famous Tim Tebow 316 game? If you guys remember that game, if you don't Google it later, it's pretty amazing from a spiritual standpoint. But regardless, having grown up a Cleveland Browns fan, I'm, I'm entitled to hate the Steelers. It's, it's not my fault, John Knoll, I'm sorry. It's not that I don't love you, it's just that you grow up in Cleveland, you're not allowed to like the Steelers, and now Baltimore, and, and everybody, because everybody wins and you don't. But anyway, so... I remember that year because he played for the Broncos and I lived in Colorado 10 years and I was watching the game and rooting for the Broncos. But here's the thing. Everybody knew Tim Tebow was an amazing man, a godly man, but not an amazing quarterback. And we could debate about that some other time on Facebook. That's what people do. But he wasn't a phenomenal quarterback. So when you get to the end of the game and here they are, they got whatever it is, 80, 88 yards to go. It's crazy amount. You're thinking, this is it. It's over. He's back up at his own end zone. And then he throws that pass. If you don't remember, it is unbelievable. And all of a sudden, his, the wide receiver, I think it was Demarius Thomas, I don't remember, like dodges a few guys. And next thing you know, he's bolting. And you're thinking, this is one of the fastest guys in the NFL. He's gone. And here's what happened to me. I'm kind of half paying attention, half not. I'm thinking this is going to take an eight minute drive or whatever. And they're probably going to get stalled out anyway. And all of a sudden it happens. I am out of my my chair. I am jumping up and down. I'm yelling, ah, go, go, go. I'm going bonkers. My son, who's like, I don't know, two and a half, three years old at the time, he looks at me, his eyes are this big. He is scared to death. Suddenly, I get done, and, and they get in the end zone, and I'm like, go nuts. Like, amazing. I pick up my son. I'm swinging him around in a circle. I'm like, he did it. They won. And he looks at me, and he goes, do it again, daddy. Do it again. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't. He's like, why not? I don't, know, I don't know how to recreate that excitement from that moment. But my son saw it as, you're celebrating me. I'm like, I should have been celebrating you. How do I recreate that excitement? Let's talk about how as Christians. Let's pick up real quick. I'm going to do like a really brief summary of what we looked at last week. Here it is. Our purpose as a church, our purpose as a church is simply this. Removing all the baggage and all the clutter, it's simply this. We want to become more like Christ. At the end of the day, individually, as people, if we do that, we win. Collectively, as a group, if we do that, we win. That's how we know we're winning, when we become more like Christ. Now, individually, personally, I do that in my daily life, through sermons or, or even possibly a song or, or God's word or something I'm listening to, God's spirit is moving me, and he's encouraging me to be more patient or more gracious, more generous, or more merciful, or more loving, or more kind, more faithful, whatever it is he's doing in me. Every time he does it, I celebrate God's growing me, God's moving me. But then corporately, as a church, we can always ask this question, are we becoming more like Jesus on this earth? Are we becoming more kind, and more loving, and more gracious, and more merciful? Are we becoming more generous with our time, and our talents, and our treasures? Are we doing these things? If so, then we could celebrate, because we are becoming more like Christ. In fact, last week I showed you this verse. It's really convicted me lately. And it's this. It's in John chapter 12, verse 23 and 24. Jesus is literally about to die on the cross the next day. And, and the disciples bring him somebody who is not a Jewish man. He's not a Hebrew. He's a Greek person. And they want to meet Jesus. Two guys. They want to meet Jesus. And Jesus responds by basically saying this. And I'll read it and then I'll explain it. So John 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, Jesus says, unless, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many plants. It's not what it says, does it? Many seeds. 
So Jesus always spoke in parables. In case you don't know this, he did it on purpose. It wasn't an accident. Jesus didn't want to go around being Confucius, creating, you know, uh, whatever, you know, Chinese little fortune cookie type statements that you go, oh, that's deep. I don't know what it means, but add in the bathtub and it works. Like, that was not Jesus' goal. Jesus spoke in parables in part so that the enemy and the enemies fighting against him wouldn't understand what he's up to. But after he died on the cross and rose from the dead, the spirit would make clear to the disciples, the apostles, and to us what he meant. This one is like really easy. You maybe read it before in your Bible and went, I have no idea what to do with that. Just stop and think about it. It's not hard to figure out. What Jesus is saying is this. These guys want to talk to him and he's like, you know what? Right idea, wrong time. Because my hour to die has come, and so I need to go die. Now, that phrase alone was mind-boggling, even the disciples. Because everybody wanted a king who was going to overthrow Rome. Rome was this oppressive government. They wanted the Messiah. That's why they all just gathered together and laid down palm branches and said, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Because our king has come to overthrow our enemy. And look how much power he has. He makes the blind see. He makes the lame walk. He makes the deaf hear. He could beat anybody. Let's make him our king. And Jesus is going, no, you don't understand. My kingdom is one of death and life. I'm going to die. I'm a seed that's going to go into the ground. And when I have gone into the ground and died, I'll raise up. But notice what he doesn't say. I'm not going to raise up a, a stalk of wheat, corn, picket, tree. I'm going to raise up a stalk of seeds. What is it those seeds are going to do? They're going to die. See, I'm going to go into the ground. Amazingly, he did. And then I'm going to raise the life. And I'm going to create an army of seeds that go into the ground and raise up and create life and go into the ground that raise up and create life. These two verses are Jesus' ministry in a nutshell. And as I told you briefly last week, I'm going to build on this every single week. The goal of every Christian in becoming like Christ is asking this question, how do I die? How do I pick up my cross daily every day and die? What does it mean to sacrifice my life for the benefit of others to the glory of God? Or as Hugh Holter says it, and I love this quote, I quote it all the time, he says this, the church is God's people intentionally committing to die together so that others can find his kingdom. So now, if I'm a Christian, or if I'm thinking about becoming a Christian, I realize some of you watching online and visiting with us today, you're not sure you're there yet, and you're asking this question, what does it mean to die with a group of people? Like, that sounds really intimidating. Well, in other countries, you may literally physically die for your faith, but for the most part here in America, that's not going to happen. For the most part, by and large, dying for you is going to mean becoming like Jesus every single day. So if we want to know what this means, we should study the life of Jesus, which is what I want to do right now. So turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 4, here's what we see. Jesus has just received the Holy Spirit in his baptism. Then he goes out into the wilderness. He's being tempted by Satan. He overcomes the temptation of Satan. And when he gets back from his temptation, he goes right to his hometown, the area where he was born and raised, on the playground. It's where he spent most of his days. And only, only those who grew up in the 80s have any idea what I just did there. So, Google it. Okay, so... Luke chapter four, what happens is Jesus walks into the local synagogue. Now, in that day, there was the major temple in Jerusalem. In the temple in Jerusalem, people would flock from all over to, to worship there. But what they had is little mini synagogues out in the place, out in the various towns. Well, if you were a small town like Galilee, and especially like in Nazareth, you didn't have a, a, a preacher, so to speak. You didn't have a rabbi. And so what they would do is they would have that, kind of these traveling speakers or preachers who'd show up. And so anybody who showed up willing to be able to preach, they'd pretty much take you. It's not much different than some smaller churches in rural communities today. So Jesus shows up at this 
church or synagogue, can't really church, in the area where he grew up, and he grabs the scroll, he walks up, grabs the scroll, and he unfolds the scroll, he locates Isaiah 61, and he reads from Isaiah 61. And here's what he reads, Luke chapter four, verse 18 and 19. The spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. Now let's just stop there for a second. So let's just walk through these. Did Jesus' life, his ministry, those three and a half years he's on earth, actually do this? Proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus was often seen with the poorest, or what the scripture calls the least of these. He's often seen, for instance, in one moment, this lady comes up to him. She's been bleeding for years. She spent all of her money on doctors trying to solve her medical problem. She has no money left and no answers, no solutions. But she comes up to Jesus and finds her healing. Jesus is often seen hanging out with um, lepers. Today, we often call leprosy Hanskin's disease, um, or I think I'm saying that wrong. I, I think that's Hansen's disease, Hansen's disease. But there's different kinds of skin diseases that could be called leprosy in, in Jesus' day. But essentially, anybody who was a leper was kicked out of town and moved out uh, to its own little commune, communal living space. They couldn't be with their family. They couldn't take part in the temple. They couldn't worship God. They couldn't be around other people. They would go out there and slowly waste away until they died. But they had to do it because the disease was so highly contagious, they had to remove it from culture. But Jesus is often seen healing lepers and others just like him. People who are very, very poor, poor in spirit, poor in and money, poor in life. We move on. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. I don't know of any gospel stories where that happened. In fact, at one point, John the Baptist is in prison and he sends some of his buddies over and says, can you ask Jesus if he's really the one? And Jesus basically sends a message back like, yeah, you ain't getting out of jail, John, sorry. I guess later in Acts, um, some, of the, some of the apostles are in prison and they pray and sing and things happen and they get released. So that doesn't really happen. We'll come back to that. It's not that Jesus didn't do it. Recovery of sight for the blind. I mean, this happens throughout the, the New Testament. At one point, a blind man and Jesus kind of have this, this interaction where Jesus spits in the mud and, and, or spits in the dirt and makes some mud and he puts it on the guy's eyes and tells the guy to go take a bath in this place and he comes back, he could see. And the Pharisees are mad. They're like, well, who healed you? He's like, well, I don't know. I know what he sounded like. <laughs> it's not like I could see the guy. Like, well, I, you gotta tell us where he is. You know, he, he must be doing this on behalf of Satan and whatever. And the guy's like, what? why are you so obsessed with this dude? Like, all I know is I was blind and now I see. And then he says, and to set the oppressed free. Well, this is what the Rome, everybody wanted the, Jesus to do with the Romans. The Romans were oppressing the Israelites. Free us, free us, set us free. But Jesus never did that. So apparently when Jesus stood up in his hometown and said, here, this is my ministry, this is what I've come to do, apparently either he's a liar or it doesn't mean everything that it says word for word, right? The next verse actually describes how Jesus came and accomplished all of these things. The very next verse, verse 19, says this. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's it. This is a little quote out of Leviticus chapter 25. I've never read it before. If you had, you would know why you should be jumping up and down and screaming right now. Leviticus 25 tells us about something. And before I can tell you about Leviticus 25, I need to tell you, set a, I need to set the kind of the ground for understanding this. When God took the Israelites out of Egypt as slaves and he led them to the promised land. See, if you've been a slave for a long time, you've been in prison, literally. Every day you wake up, you work hard for somebody else, you do what they tell you to do, and it's back breaking work. It's oppressive. 
It's terrible. But when God led them out of that and into the promised land, he took them in there as people of celebration. In fact, God literally ordained feasts for them. It's amazing, by the way. I would love to do a sermon, a sermon series on this sometime. Each of the feasts points us clearly to Jesus. But there are weekly feasts. So every Saturday is called the Sabbath. Nobody's allowed to work on Sabbath. You're literally going to eat and hang out together. That's it. One whole day for your body just to rest. Then beyond that, they had monthly feasts and they had yearly feasts. And they had these gatherings. And sometimes they're a day long. Sometimes they're like a week long. I mean, the Israelites knew how to throw a party for crying out loud. And here's the thing. One of their favorite kind of feast times was every seven years, the land was supposed to lay fallow, meaning you were not supposed to work the land. Agricultural society, they're farmers, they have animals. And every seven years, you don't work for a whole year. So you work hard six years, the seventh year, you don't work. Just like you work hard six days, seventh day, you don't work. You're like, how in the world can you do that? Well, it's quite simple. You trust on that seventh year, God's gonna show up. You mean the whole year? Yep. You mean for a whole year we don't work? Yes. How many of you men are like, how, how can they do that? That's how I felt about a year ago, about this exact time frame. This church graciously sent me on a sabbatical. I took a 60-day sabbatical. And uh, I'll tell you, for the first 30 to 45 days, I felt like most of you who might be twitching thinking about it. It, it was hard. I needed, I needed a hill to climb. I needed something to do. And I could, there were projects around the house, but I, it was hard. There were days I'm just like, I just need to go to work. I, I just need to go see what, who's dying or whose life is falling apart that I can save. I, I just need to be somebody's savior today. And God kept reminding me, no, this is a gift. This is your time to just relax. It took about 45 days, 40 days, right as it was almost done, till my heart finally went, For about two weeks, I felt like I could just be a human. I could just play with my kids and laugh and give my wife a nap in the middle of the day and do the dishes and not at all be stressed about what had to happen next. And here's the thing. As an Israelite, God built that into the system so that every seven years, that's how it was supposed to be for a whole year. Could you imagine how healthy your marriage would be? Maybe you shouldn't. Some of you retired and you're like, that's not at all how it went for me. That's because you didn't do it every sixth year, seventh year leading up to you. You just one day did it and they didn't know what to do with you. So here's the thing. Leviticus 25 tells us about the 50th year. So imagine this. You got seven sets of seven. So seven times seven is 49. I did it on a calculator. I know it's right. So, so now you've had a year, a sabbatical year, but year 50 is what's called the year of Jubilee. So it's back-to-back sabbatical years. Every 50 years. You might actually hit that when you are eight years old and hope that you live long enough to hit it again. But it's possible if you hit it, say, in your 30s is when that year comes along, you may never get a second one. So when the year of Jubilee came, this is what's most amazing. It's called the year of the Lord's favor because in that year, all debts are erased. All dumb decisions go away. So if when you were 25, you went out really aggressively, you're gonna start your own business, you're leaving mom and dad, and you started something and it failed miserably, and now you're in debt more than you can afford. It's not like today where you just go to the bank and borrow money. You had to give up something. You had to give up your land or maybe even literally trade your, you and your family to become servants to whoever you owed the money to to work it off for them. But then when you got to that year, year 50, the year of Jubilee, all debts are erased. It's gone. 
Maybe you don't understand why that's cause for celebration. Could you imagine for a minute that, that, that President Trump comes walking out here? And that may not be a celebration for many of you. I get it. But if President Trump were to come walking out here today and he said, guys, I just want you to know, Pastor Matt invited me here. I've, I've talked to Congress. And uh, we're erasing everybody's debt. No mortgage, no car loan, no credit card debt. Everybody in here goes free. And whatever you have is yours. How many of you in here, besides you might not believe it, but how many of you in here would go, woohoo? Like five of you, okay? <laughs> five of you would do that, good. Maybe you don't have enough debt. By the way, that's biblical, isn't it? I mean, this woman one day, this, this moral woman, she's got a tremendous amount of embarrassing and shameful sins. And she comes to Jesus, starts wiping his feet with her tears. And Jesus realizes, everybody in the room, they don't, they're like, this is weird. Why are you letting her do this? And Jesus just looks at one of the guys on the table and says, Simon, let me ask you a question. There's two people that owe a lot of debt. One maybe owes $1,000 and one owes a $1 million. If the guy who they owe the debt to erases a $1,000 debt and the guy who owes raises the million dollar debt, which one's gonna praise him more? The one who owns the million dollars. Yeah, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Why? Because I've erased her debt. And here's the thing. That's the cause for celebration, friends. The reason we celebrate is because when Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead, he erased all our debts. So we can't earn heaven. We can't earn salvation. We can't earn right standing with God. We can never be enough. And our identity will never have enough, do enough, be enough. But in Christ, we can all rest because the year of Jubilee has come for us. Jesus came to bring us the favor of God. And that is cause for great celebration. Thank you. Like 30 of you are there. By the end of this, all of you will be there. Richard Foster says this is celebration of disciplines. In the Old Testament, all the social stipulations of the year of Jubilee, canceling all debts, releasing slaves, planting no crops, returning property to the original owner, were a celebration of the gracious provision of God. God could be trusted to provide what was needed. He had declared, I will command my blessing upon you. Do you know how powerful that statement is out of Leviticus? I will command my blessing. In other words, I'm forcing it to happen. Freedom from anxiety and care forms the basis for celebration because we, as Christians, as believers, we know God cares for us so we could cast all our care upon him. God has turned our mourning into dancing. Oh, what a powerful phrase. But here's what's interesting. If you were to read what Jesus read in, in Luke chapter four and compare it to Isaiah 61, it's not the whole story. Let me just show it to you. Isaiah 61. Here's, it's gonna sound very familiar and then it's gonna not sound very familiar. Isaiah 61, verse one. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Sound familiar? To proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus stops right there. But he stops mid-sentence. 
Like all the grammar English people in the room are like, you can't do that. Well, he's Jesus. He can do what he wants. But he stops right before this. And the day of vengeance of our God. Why in the world would Jesus stop before he gets to that point? Well, it must be an accident. Luke is probably just summarizing because everybody knows if he summarizes, then the rest of it's implied. Well, the rest of it is implied. All of it is implied. But Jesus stopped there on purpose. Let me show it to you real quick. Here's the rest of what he says. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. And a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness. A planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. In other words, Jesus said, I have come to set captives free to release the oppressed. And what this is going to do, the back half, what this is going to do is create in them mighty oaks who will be on display the splendor of God. I'm going to take the greatest pain and sadness and mourning and terrible sorrow of this world. And I'm going to turn it into great joy and celebration and praise. And there's that little verse right there in the middle. The vengeance, the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus stops before that. Why? Well, the people around him knew. If you read Luke chapter 4, they get angry at him. You can't be that guy. There's no way. What do you mean if today is that day? But Jesus literally sits down. He's like, yep, today that's, that day is happening in front of you. What do you mean that day is happening? Aren't you Joseph's son? We know your daddy. You can't. You're not the. Stop. Go away. And what they're really mad about. Remember all the way back to chapter 4, verse 18? What they're really mad about is Jesus leaves off the part where he's going to judge everybody but us. So the Hebrews wanted him. They wanted him, or at least the people there in Galilee, they wanted him. Yes, go punch those Romans in the face. You go overthrow the Messiah, but don't you dare tell us the Messiah is coming and he's going to do all of this for everybody, but that's what Jesus is saying. Do you get the implication? Jesus stops before the day of the vengeance of the Lord because that's not today. Oh, don't get me wrong. That day's coming. And it will be a great and terrible day as the Bible describes. Because on the last day, when Jesus returns, then will come the judgment day. The day of accountability where everybody will have to say, did I do with Jesus what needed to be done? But until that day comes, while it's still called today, the Bible says Jesus came not to judge, but to save, to rescue, to redeem, to bring joy to sad hearts, to comfort those who are mourning, to bring dancing to those whose lives feel broken and destroyed. Church, there's your mission because that's what Jesus did in you. And you can clap for that. We're up to about half of you. By the end, we're going to get there. Because listen, this very last part is so powerful, so powerful. You who have met Jesus, God's doing something in you. He has changed you from light to dark. From lost. I said that backwards. That changed the entire meaning of the gospel. Let's not put that clip on Facebook later. He's changed you from dark to light, from lost to found, from dead to alive, so that you can be on display for God's splendor. Your life 
is a screaming celebration of the glory of God. Because you're perfect? Oh, no. Because you earned it? No again. Because he is so good and merciful and kind and gracious. He has come to set captives free. He has come to bring light into darkness, to give sight to the blind. But it was not just physical. Yes, Jesus did that on earth, but he did that so he could tell people how he's doing that in eternity. So church, let me ask you a question. Is your life reflecting celebration in God? Are you constantly speaking of his praises and glory? Does your life in its good deeds, like a mighty oak planted next to a river, standing strong and growing and producing beauty for all to see, is that how your life is in the midst of those around you? When other people look at you, do they see something that's different and unique about you? You're not just mourning. You're not just grieving. You're not just sad. You're not overwhelmed. You're not a captive, but you are a free man, a free woman. I don't care how old or how young, to walk in his goodness every day. And does your mouth scream of the praises of the one who has saved you because that's what it means to celebrate take a look real quick hebrews chapter 13 verse 15 if you don't know how to find it don't worry about it. it's on the screen the hebrew writer says this through jesus therefore let us continually offer to god a sacrifice of what a praise what is it it's the fruit of lips that openly profess his name and do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Where did we start? We want to become like Jesus in living our lives by dying so that others will live, so that they will die, so that others will live. It's everything the writer of Hebrews just said here. The fruit of our lives, being good to others, being kind to others, sharing with others, and giving praise to God with our mouth is a sacrifice that pleases our Heavenly Father. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, if you aren't familiar with some of the Bible language, you're like, that is a bunch of spiritual mumbo jumbo. I have no idea what he's talking about. Again, this one's not hard. Let me tell you what it means. So if you go all the way back, Jesus is the living stone. He's often called the cornerstone, especially by Peter. In ancient times, and even still today, actually, you could ask probably um, Brian Franco about this, but you put down the first stone. Before you can build all those other stones, whatever you're building, the first stone has to be in the right place. If that first stone is off by even one degree, everything is off and it gets bigger as you go forward, and especially if you build up. Same thing is true, but since Jesus' life was perfect, he was able to lay down his life as the first stone. And every other stone, that's me and you, hence why it says, as you come to him, he's the living stone. Then go to the next slide. And it says, but you also, like living stones, you become just just like the first stone. Do you see what Peter's saying? It's the same thing I've been saying. Your goal is to become like Christ. And what happened is when you come to Jesus, he is building something out of you, a priesthood. You may not know why that's powerful, but in the Old Testament, there was a tribe, the Levites. They were the priests in the temple of God. The thing is, there were 12 tribes. They were only one of the tribes. The other 11 tribes had to come to that one tribe in order to get to God. And what Peter just said is, now it's a new day. Everybody who comes to Jesus is now a priest. 
You know what that means? You're the mediator between God and man. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus is the only mediator, but you're the one. You're the physical representation. You're the living stone that other people come to, and they meet God because of you. Now, how? How do you offer spiritual sacrifices? Peter doesn't leave you hanging. Look down in verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may do what? Keep quiet. Declare. You know what declare is? Declare is when Tim Tebow throws a pass and the last moment of the game and you jump out of your chair and you go, yes, yeah, go, go, go. And other people look at you and say, do it again. Because it's the moment where you are opening up your mouth. You're like, I just can't help it. I got to tell you about this. You declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people. Now, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I didn't even get one person on that one. I didn't even get five, like nobody thought, hey, now I have mercy. Nobody was like, yes, why? No, I'm being serious, why? I had, after last, after last sermon, I had a whole bunch of people come up to me in the hallway, like, good, good sermon, pastor. I said, thank you. They're like, I was with you. I'm just not a very vocal person. I said, that's a problem. We're, we're Caucasian Americans. We're, not all of you, praise God, not all of you. Thank God there are some people in here who are different than us. Praise God. However, most of us learn the golf clap more than we learn to cheer. So consequently, we watch somebody go into the waters of baptism and they come up and we go, praise God, praise God. Yes, amen. Instead of going, woohoo, yes, we just conquered the kingdom of darkness. We just won in that person's life. Praise Jesus. Why? Why are we so afraid to let go? Well, other people might make fun of us. They're already making fun of us. Have you read the news? They think we're bonkers. And to be honest, most of us are. But what would happen if we understood what it meant to win in this world? What would happen if our sacrifice was actually the praise of God? Well, here's three things, three things. Well, let me back up before I get to that. Here's what it means to celebrate. Here's what it means to celebrate. Since we love God, we celebrate God's grace in worship as we express gratitude for his blessing. That's what it means to celebrate. We do it in service, we do it out of service. We do it personally in our everyday lives and we do it out there. There's three things we celebrate, three things. It's pretty simple. Number one, we celebrate what God has done. We look at the past. We say, God, thank you for moving me from death to life. We look at that for our kids. We look at that for our neighbors. Every time we've seen God move in the past, we celebrate. And we tell the stories often. The other day, I, I was sitting in the kitchen, and I heard uh, my oldest, Matthias, ask a story. And I go, oh, oh, oh. And I run in the room. Can I tell the story? Can I tell the story? He was asking the story about how he was brought from Taiwan to our home. And I gave, like, the hour-long version. Like, I've only given you guys a five-minute version. Like, I'm, my wife's looking at me. She's like, you're going way too deep. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is such a God story. And if you know this piece and this piece and this piece and this piece, these are all God. He was moving here. He did this, and I just couldn't, couldn't help it. And I'm celebrating all that God had done. But number two, I'm celebrating what God is doing right here, right now. 
Now, here's the thing. When we're celebrating what God is doing, sometimes that's literal fruit. Man, we see somebody going to the waters of baptism. We're like, yes. But you know what? We also celebrate. We celebrate what God is doing. We celebrate the little victories like this. Like when I get to have a God-honoring conversation with somebody over a cup of coffee, that's something that God is doing. How do I know? Because I don't know what God's going to do with it. But that leads me to number three. I know God's going to do something with it. Because God promises me he's never going to waste any of my sacrifices. All of my sacrifices for him are going to be used by him in his kingdom. Church, you need to get this. See, when I got here eight years ago, I started asking two questions. And they don't always, like, sometimes they fall flat, I'll admit. But I asked these same two questions. Where did you invest in God's kingdom last week? And where are you celebrating God moving last week? That's it, those two questions. That first question, where did you invest in God's kingdom, is simply building on Paul's statement. Paul says, and I always forget which book it is, but in one of his books, he says this. He goes, you know what? I think it's 1 Corinthians. I think it's in chapter three now. He says, somebody else planted a seed, somebody else watered that seed, and then somebody else gets to bring the harvest from that seed. See, you never know in any moment which role you're playing. And if your celebration is only based on bringing the harvest of all the hard work God's been doing in somebody's life, then you only get to celebrate it the touchdown. But if you know part of the celebration is simply moving the ball down the field, then guess what? You can celebrate knowing that what you're doing today, every sacrifice you make, every time you show up and you help in kids' ministry, you worship here on stage, every time you lead your life group, every time you help with communion, every time you meet with somebody over coffee and you try to tell them about God, even if it feels like you failed, even if they don't come to faith, you're trusting that God's not going to waste your sacrifice. Yes. Now we're like 90% of you. We celebrate and we celebrate and we celebrate because we're trying to cultivate in us this desire to see God move in us. And we want to train our brains and our bodies and our hearts that when he does, we give him glory. We give him praise. And then it's not about me. You see how that works? See, when I have this attitude, I can simply let go of the me and search for the you and the we in our worship. That means I could show up at church and it's not about, hey, I think Matt, you know, I think he had a bunt today or man, Matt had a grand slam. That was amazing. He blew me away. Instead, I could show up and say, you know what? God's on the move. God is on the move. And I'm going to make sure I celebrate him because he's going to move in somebody's life today. And I know it. I don't have to wonder because Matt's making a sacrifice. I'm making a sacrifice. Others are making a sacrifice. And God never wastes a sacrifice. So church, here's what I want to do. I want to celebrate. I want to celebrate. We're about to sing a song. It's right now, it's one of my favorite songs we sing. But it's one of those songs you can't just, you can't sing it down here. It's one of those songs, when we get about halfway through the song, you'll know when we start it, you start singing, you gotta belt it out or you can't stay on key, right? It's one of those songs, we do that on purpose, by the way, it's not an accident. It's one of those songs that you gotta sing it out. But here's some, some of you, you hold back like, I can't sing it out because I'm, I might not hit the right note. Who cares? The Bible doesn't say sing a right note for the Lord. The Bible says make a joyful noise to the Lord, amen? Some of you only know how to do that. <laughs> Let's all stand, Let's stand. Man, this is the one time, all right, you are allowed to dance. Somebody told me last service, I want to dance up and down the aisle. I said, why didn't you? I gave you permission. I said, I don't know. You want to dance, dance. You want to sing, sing. You want to shout, shout. 
Father God, receive our praise right now, our celebration of all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you are going to do in our midst. We know you're not done with us, God. Move in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. We're listening to your music. It's about helping people see that they were lost apart from Christ. And every time we move the ball down the field to help that happen, it's cause for celebration. Every conversation, every letter written, every email shared, every uh, time we watch a baptism, every time someone shows up you've been cheering, every time it's cause for celebration. So what we want to do right now is we just want to practice celebration. We're going to close our service with a song. And it's currently my favorite song we sing. You may or may not agree. It's one of those yelling songs, you know, like you can't sing it without letting go kind of things. So I want to encourage you today to just let it fly. Let it go. Sing it out. Clap. Yell. Dance like Isaiah said you dance. In church, yeah, for one Sunday, we'll give you a free pass. You want to dance? Dance. Some of you are going to dance and you're going to do the the cool guy dance. Some of you might just let it fly. You're going to let it go. But I just want to tell you, celebrate. Celebrate like this matters. Celebrate like God's changed you. Yes. Let's stand. Let's do this. Father, would you stir in our hearts a heart of celebration, a heart of joy. You've set us free. You've changed us. God, let us be a light to this dark world through our celebration for you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said.